Well, thank you, Father, now for the great privilege we have of having our Bibles open on our laps, our ears attuned to listen to what you have to say to us through your Holy Spirit and through the sacred text. Thank you that we hold the truth of your word in our hands. And uh, thank you for your good hand upon us for another week. And, and as we've gathered now to be renewed and refreshed and restored and replenished, to move out for the week ahead and face the unknown, Lord, we want to be faithful to you and we want to shine brightly as lights in a, in a dark world. And so we give ourselves to you this morning. We we find it so easy to say that we surrender all, and yet we hold hard to some of the loves of this world. And, and so I pray that you would do your cleansing work in us. May your word minister to us now, and we give ourselves to it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, it's hard to believe that uh, it's been almost two weeks. It has been two Sundays. It seems longer to me since we were last together and we were getting launched in our studies in the book of Genesis. I don't know when's the last time you've read Genesis. There's a lot there, and it's going to take us a while to get through it all. I hope that you'll find it interesting and challenging and encouraging and strengthening. As we begin this morning, I want you to to think about uh, going home today, say, and you pull in your driveway and perhaps you hit the garage door opener and you roll into your garage and, and you shut the car off, you get up and you go through the kitchen, you walk in and there in your living room stands a genuine, authentic, full-size elephant. You don't pay much mind to it. It's there all the time. And... Um, but today you have company, you have guests who are coming, uh, uh, perhaps um, uh, important folk like the pastor and his family or something, and they're all coming in, and maybe our guest missionaries today, and you're going to have dinner, and you've got a pot roast coming out of the oven, and, and uh, you invite us all in, and we walk into your house, and there's this elephant in the living room. Well, we kind of look at each other, we wait for an explanation, there's no explanation, we enjoy a good meal, we move to the living room to sit down, we're trying to have conversation, looking underneath its belly once in a while, you know, getting uh, swatted with a tail or something. We leave and we never get an explanation of the elephant in the living room and we look at each other and we're driving home and we say, what in the world was that all about? They have an elephant in their living room and they never said a word about it. That's crazy. Well, I've entitled our message this morning, The Elephants in the Living Room. And I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1 because we're going to do something very basic today. We're going to have a basic study in Creation 101 and Evolution 101. And uh, obviously we have a biased speaker here this morning. And um, perhaps not the most objective approach, but I hope that you will be strengthened this morning as you open your Bibles and hold it on your lap, and as you listen, I invite you to take notes off your chair and uh, take a look at it, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like us, using another word picture, as we read Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 25 for our text here, I want you to be thinking like this. On the notes, it says it in the opening paragraph there. If we were to read Genesis chapter 1 for the very first time, and in just a minute we're going to read it, what if we're reading it for the very first time, and then we go out and we jump in our little uh, supersonic helicopter, and we grab our camera, we grab our notepad, we grab our telescope, we grab our microscope, and uh, any other scope we need, and we're going to travel around the world, and after reading Genesis chapter 1, we're going to just... Think about creation 101 at a basic level. Does our observation of the physical world meet what we see in Genesis chapter 1? Are we going to go around and observe through our telescope, through our microscope, through our binoculars? And are we going to read Genesis chapter 1 and after flying around the world in our little helicopter, are we going to go back to our Bibles and say, nah. How could you get that out of Genesis chapter? How could it be? It can't be that way. Or are we going to say, you know what? That's exactly how it is. 
When we look at Evolution 101, I want to accomplish a couple things. I want to do the same thing as we buzz around the globe in our little helicopter and we make our observations and we fill out our scientific journal and we try to figure out origins and, and look and observe the creative world around us. Are we going to say, boy, the evolutionist really got it right. He's nailing it. I would suggest that what we're going to see is that there's not just one, but there's a bunch of elephants in the living room. What do we mean by that word picture? That's not invented by me. It it represents something that is so obvious that everybody can see it. Everybody knows it's there. It's not difficult to figure out, but no one will admit that it's there. And I'm going to suggest, and we're going to rattle off nine elephants that are in the living room of the secular evolutionist naturalist who is um, looking at the world through his biased lens. You see, the pastor's not the only one who's biased this morning. Our evolutionist is biased, and his bias is this. There cannot be a God. Because there cannot be a God, he therefore has to come up with a naturalistic explanation. The naturalist is one who is going to explain everything from natural cause. It cannot be a supernatural cause. At the end, you tell me, is it difficult to open our Bibles, to read it, and to say, there's the truth. That's the way it happened. Now, I'm not a scientist, and this is not a scientific book. It is simply a Holy Spirit-inspired, divine directed account of what God wants us to know about how we originated. I think you'll find that it's uh, rather simplistic. I think you'll find that it's um, very easy to follow in your thinking that what we observe in the natural world fits beautifully with what unfolds in Genesis chapter 1. We will not see contradictions but we will see huge, huge problems in the living room of the evolutionist. I want to say, too, before we read, that Genesis chapter 1 does not answer all of our questions. And I want to say repeatedly through this time that I would would encourage our boys and girls to grow up, to be students of the natural world, to be readers, to look through microscopes and look through telescopes. Proverbs says it's the glory of kings to search out these matters. Be one who is a discoverer. Be fascinated by the natural world. But let me encourage you, A, don't be embarrassed of your Bible and believing that God created the world. And B, don't ever get caught with elephants in your living room that you're afraid to admit. It's pretty embarrassing. It's hard to clean up. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Follow along. I'm reading out of the New International Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under Excuse me, verse 7 again. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees in the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And He also made the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, and He said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Isn't that great? Now, I don't know if you noticed in that passage, but there are numerous repeated phrases. There are four that stand out, and they actually give us uh, kind of a, uh, a helpful understanding of what's happening here a little bit. I want you to notice, and if you're interested in filling in your notes, you'll want to pay attention now. But as we look at this passage, and we just step back from it, and remember now we have our camera around our neck, we have our telescope packed in its case, we've got our microscope, uh, we've got our clipboard and our pen, we're jumping in our helicopter, and now what we want to do is we want to go around the world and we want to observe the natural world and we want to say, okay, all right, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm probably not the dumbest guy in the world, and now I'm just going to go look around and does what I see fit Genesis chapter 1? Does it make sense? Or am I going to see erroneous concepts that just real, will not fit in? And once we step back, we've just read this for the first time, and I don't know about you, but when I come away from Genesis chapter 1 and, and just a, 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 a regular reading of it, not trying to, just trying to read it for what it is, and I look and I step back from it, and when I'm beginning to think about creation at a 101 level, these kinds of words come out of Genesis chapter 1. Order. Design, beauty. I see that, that it was an orderly world that God created. Notice this in the repeated phrases of this passage. You'll notice that it's repeated. Beginning at verse 3, he starts a pattern of saying over and over and over again in this passage, And God said... When we talked about this two weeks ago, we talked about how the psalmist even proclaimed that it was by the breath of his mouth that he proclaimed it to be true. And God said. Now, you know what I get from that? I get, I get a great level of confidence from that. The idea is that it is a control, not chance. Control, not chance. Think about it. He spoke and it happened. God is outside of the material world. He's supernatural. And God, by definition, is going to be beyond our understanding apart from what He's revealed to us. But for God, it is nothing for Him to speak things into existence. It's the idea of control and not chance. Notice then, beginning with verse 8, there's another expression that begins to pop up over and over. In verse 8, it, it says... I messed up. Verse 9. In verse 9, it says, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And then notice this phrase that begins. It is up in verse 7. At the end of 7 and then in verse 9. And it was so. And it was so. So you get the idea that it is not random chance. You can't get random chance out of this. You can't get chaos. You can't get explosions out of Genesis chapter 1. You have... You have control and not chance. And God said, boom. 
The second thing you have is this phrase that's repeated, and it was so. And what you get there is you see immediately that it was instantaneous, not billions of years. You don't have large expanses of time. You have the Hebrew word used for a 24-hour day in this passage. You have the definitive time frame of morning and evening, and that was the first day. How else are you supposed to take it? You have to read into the passage to make long expanses of time come, come to bear here. It is clearly, and it was so. What are you going to get from that? Boom. And then notice verse 10. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called, and, and the gathered waters he called sea. And then he begins this expression over and over throughout this passage. Did you notice it? A third expression that is repeated multiple times. And God saw that it was good. Don't you love that? And God saw that it was good. You know, if you stop and think about it, it's almost a redundant thing to say that in the passage. And it was good. What is God going to do? Go, oops. At the end of the day of creating, and he speaks it into existence. Hey, Gabe, Michael, come over here and check this out. I accidentally put wings on a a giraffe. It's like, oops. God's not going to do that. God, by definition, and by his own nature, and his own attributes of perfection, and holiness, and order, he's only going to do, he's good. He can only do that which is good. As we buzz around the globe in our helicopter, depending, it doesn't matter where we land. We don't even have to go to Denali National Park, or down to to some beautiful part, part of the world. We get out of our helicopter essentially anywhere, And you look around at the natural world and you say, wow, it's so good. It's just amazing. Another repeated phrase, verse 11, it begins when he starts talking about plants and variety. He repeats, and God said, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And then notice in verse 11, we have another repeated phrase throughout the whole passage. According to their kinds. Up on, and God saw that it was good, we see beauty, function, and design, don't we? We see beauty, function, and design, not chaos, death, and dying, according to the evolutionist. According to their kinds, we now have order, not disorder. It's a pretty simple concept, really. As we jump out of our helicopter and we we get our binoculars out, we're going to see, we're going to see things happening that we would expect to see. We see a field full of cattle. And around the world, we have cattle. Did you notice that, that he differentiated domesticated animals over in verse 24 from wild animals? Isn't it interesting that God put certain kind of animals on the world that are very productive for humankind? From milk to beef to leather to bacon, to mutton. It's interesting, we get in our helicopter and we're in Montana and we see that they can have thousands of cattle and it's really productive and it really works. And then all of a sudden, we got a rancher comes running up to us and says, fellas, come with your cameras, take a picture of this. I, I got an old cow out here that just, that just gave birth to a snake. Or, you know, I can't even think of something crazy here. Cattle have, after its various kinds. We don't even go to some other place and some guy's got a whole corral full of lions and tigers. Except for a zoo, but he's not working them, he's not eating them. They don't raise polar bear up in Alaska for, you know, livestock. Why? Because it's an orderly world and it's exactly the way it fits in Genesis chapter 1 and that's what we see in these repeated phrases. Isn't that amazing? Notice too that we have kind of a pattern in the days in this passage. Day 1, we have light. And we talked about the, the question mark behind that light. We don't know. The sun and the moon weren't created yet then. Of course, the moon is just a reflective light. But we don't know what that light is. We know that in the book of Revelation, that in the the celestial city, that the light is going to come from God himself. And I take that to be a physical light. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, when he creates light, it could be some kind of a diffused light that comes from him. What, then what does he do? Shelter it in for darkness? We don't know. Nobody knows what that light is. It just says it. We'll leave it there. But notice the pattern here. Day one, light. Okay, on day one, he created light. On day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. All right? On day two, he creates sky and water and he separates them. It was all kinds of water and uncreated matter at first. But then on day two, he creates sky and water. But, and then day five is the correlating day. Sky and water, he fills with the water, he fills with fish and creatures of the sea. And the sky, he fills with birds. It's funny, that's exactly how it works out, isn't it? As we look around and as we buzz around the world in our helicopter, we're finding fish in the water every time. And we're finding birds in the sky. It sounds foolish to say it, but that's exactly how it was described in Genesis chapter 1. Our natural world is bearing evidence that the way things were created is the way things are. Notice then day 3, he creates land, and on day 6, he puts land animals and man. So... Day one, the light, and then the sun and the moon on day four. Day two, the sky and the water, birds and fish on day five. And then on the land, he has the land animals and men. There's a pattern. He's a God of order. Let's ask our question one more time. When we look around our world, what do we see? Does it bear witness of the credibility of this passage? In our passage, we see in verse 14 that there's a separation of day and night. Well, lo and behold, everywhere we go in the world, there's day and night. Isn't that interesting? It works exactly the way it said it in our passage. We're buzzing around our helicopter and we're trying to find an inconsistency. We're trying to find something in this passage that, that's not there in the, in the natural world. Notice that the planets were put there for illumination in verses 14 through 18. Verse 14, he says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve, serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. Notice that it's there for regulation as well. Notice that he says the reason he put the sun and the moon there and he puts the planets there is that there's a regulation of time. As we fly around our world, guess what we find? I brought my globe off my, out of my study today. We find that no matter where we go in the world, there's morning and there's evening and there's a 24-hour day. Isn't that interesting? Now you tell me why we have a 24-hour day. Why do we have a 24-hour day? What happens every 24 hours? The earth turns one complete rotation, right? 24 hours. All right. And then everywhere we go, we have months. Now out in the sky, there's a moon, right? What, how do we mark our months? By the lunar. Because of the moon, we have months, right? What did he say in the passage? He said, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Everywhere you go in the world, everybody marks days, everybody marks the seasons, and everybody marks years. Well, what's happening now? The whole time we're spinning all around and then the moon is coming in and it's waning and it's waxing and we have about a 30-day lunar calendar and then what's happening to this world? Where's it moving? Where's it going? Woo! All the way around what? The sun, right? And we have a, a year. And part of that year, the tilt of the earth makes it cooler or warmer depending on where it is in relation to the distance from the sun. And it happens over and over and over and over. And every year, guess what? In the northern hemisphere, in September, it begins to be fall. And then it's winter. And then it's spring. And there's an order. By the way, just a little uh, thought for something that's coming ahead in our Genesis, because it tells us in Genesis well. We have days marked for us. We have months marked for us, and we have years marked for us, and because of the tilt of the earth and the planets, we have seasons all the time that are very consistent. Where did our week come from? All around the world, there's a week. Where did the seven-day week come from? Ah, the pattern of our Heavenly Father in creation, right, and our Lord. That's interesting, and we're going to talk about that even more in detail later on.
when we talk about God's pattern given to us in creation. Well, we see that the night and the darkness are separated. We have illumination. We've observed and we've written in our journal. We've jumped back in our helicopter and we can find nowhere that, the, that the, uh, a week is three days long or that a month is only seven days or everything is consistent. We're finding that the planets are marking us everywhere we go around the world. We see then the, in the natural world, he says in verse uh, 20, that there's great variety of birds. Why, we sure know that. And we've all been in downtown Charlestown, and we went down into the basement of the pet shop, and we've looked around at the aquariums. It's unbelievable, the the variety of fish, and they just have a few of them there. Maybe a thousand different kinds. And everywhere we look, we're going scuba diving now off of Cancun, and we're seeing variety in the water. And interesting, we haven't observed, we haven't observed like, A half fish, half bird, have we? We're seeing everything exactly the way it would be when God said, and it was so. I'm not seeing anything that contradicts the word of God. We have this phrase, according to their kind, and and we have animals that are identified, don't we? Verse 21, we have identification, according to their kind. We have classification. We don't have crossover. It's interesting, isn't it, how... As God marked the seasons, and as God, and, and it's almost redundant what I'm saying. It's very simplistic. Remember, it's creation 101, but I want you to see the obvious. I was observing this week, or last week, started last week. There's two bird nests that are being built at my house. One where they build every year that I used to try to tear down. Then I got convicted about ruining their nest and stuff. And now I leave it and I just scrub off the whitewash and repaint and stuff. It's where my downspout comes underneath my eave with a curve and then goes down the house, underneath the eave by the dining room window. It's a perfect spot for a nest. You know, it's a funny thing. That bird always starts building that nest in April. They never build that nest in September, October, November, December. There's no random order. It's all on a pattern. It's all by design. That's exactly what Genesis 1 is saying to us. It's interesting when that robin lays an egg that blue jays don't hatch out. And that wouldn't even be that mind-boggling, would it? Because a robin and a blue jay, they're pretty close. They're both in the bird family. But robins always hatch robins. And blue jays always hatch blue jays. We have another uh, weeping cherry tree right there by our dining room window and it's got the perfect... Uh, nesting spot, and sure enough, they're building a nest there again. I'll let you know if when that bird hatches its eggs, if little kitty cats come out. But no, in my journal, I have to write down in my journal as I jump in my helicopter again to head to other parts unknown that everything seems to reproduce after its own kind. I've had lots of kitty cats. I've been waiting for a puppy dog. And I I never got one until I answered an ad in the newspaper for a free puppy. Boy, that's a misnomer. (laughs) After its own kind, various kinds, just just a phenomenal variety of species. And they don't get mixed up with each other. Isn't that something? That's what my Bible says. Well, we must speed on our way. In Psalm 19, 1 through 4, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day, it utters speech, even though it doesn't have a voice. Listen, creation is shouting what? Creation is shouting the key words of our 101 study. Order. Design. Beauty. Well, we've landed in the football field on one of our university campuses, funded by our tax dollars, and we roll into the, into the science lab, and we have our notebooks ready, and so far, Genesis 1 passed all our tests. We couldn't find anything. The only thing we could see that was messed up is where man messed it up because of sin, where creation became corrupted by sin, That's the only disorder and chaos we could see, and we'll talk in detail when we talk about anthropology and homardiology, man and sin, in Genesis chapter 3, and 
and how sin has affected this whole world and universe and mankind himself. But let's go to the class and let's study evolution 101. Evolution means that, what, that everything started from nothing? We talked about that three or four weeks ago. That just given enough time, that nothing will become everything. Nothing plus time equals everything. That's our formula for evolution. I'm not making fun of it. That is what I've been taught. I personally was taught that in government schools. And if you wait long enough, anything can happen, whether you can explain it or not. So now we're going to sit down and we're going to be given an introduction to evolution before we jump back in our helicopter to speed around the world to see if we can observe in the natural world the results of evolution. It ought to be there, shouldn't it? It has to be there if it's real. And by the time we head back to our helicopter and we've closed our journal, we've written down the key words for Evolution 101, haven't we? And our professor has talked about chaos. And he's talked about disorder. And he's talked a whole lot about random chance. Because without random chance and a whole lot of millions of years, an evolutionist has nothing to stand upon. They've built their whole world upon random chance. Given enough time, the odds are it will all come together. And at this point... I do not want to be uh, cynical at all. But I want to expose nine elephants in the living room. And I know it's one-way conversation when, we, when I stand in the pulpit and some of you be dying, oh, I want to answer them back on that one. I want to tell you something. These are, and I will say this and you can, we'll talk later, it is irrefutable. You cannot refute these. You can show me the examples that the evolutionists use. You can show me what you've been taught in your biology class. It always falls apart. I can find nothing. I've been on the internet. I have been trying to find answers to these. And they're not there. They always fall apart. Nine irrefutable evidences. These are the elephants in the living room. Let me click them off to you. The first one I'm not going to talk much about, and we'll just go a few more minutes, and I think we can summarize these. But the first is in case you're into theistic evolution. That's the idea that certainly the facts show, as we've traveled around in our helicopter, surely we're going to conclude our telescope, our microscope, our camera, our journal. We are going to have to conclude that evolution is real. And therefore, we can't throw God out. Number one is only for, for people who believe there's a God. The rest are for the secularists. That God used evolution to crank it all up, all up and to wind it all up. And the short of this, and we'll look in more detail, but it is, it is theologically inconsistent. You can't have it. Why? Because the evolutionist, and as, we've, as we go to the fossil digs and the archaeological digs and look at the strata of the earth, we have to find layers and layers of millions of dead animals before man ever came to be. Have you ever seen the, and they're on all the textbooks, you know the chart where it starts with like the amoeba, the simple life form? It's so simple that it can happen when lightning strikes gasoline or something. And, and, then, and then it turns into a salamander, and then, it, and then it webbed feet and grew fins, and then it crawled up, I mean it was a fish first, then it was a salamander, or, you know, and it's like the singular telephone ad where it's got the pyramid. You ever see those in your textbook all the time? You know what I'm talking about? And then, it, and then it crawls up on land, and then there's the chart in your textbook. I saw this. All my textbooks had this. And it's got man humped over with his arms like this, and then he's up a little bigger, and then he's a humpback caveman, and then, and then finally it gets to <laughs> the man, humanoid. Right? You've seen it, right? The chart growing. The other chart that you always see is the horse chart. It's the little tiny horse, the little baby horse, and then the little bigger horse, and then the bigger horse, and then the bigger horse, and the bigger horse. All right, you see that? All right? All those things had to die, right? In the chart with the man, man didn't come, man's way down here. And if you cannot be a theistic evolutionist because there was no death until Adam, the Bible clearly says, that until Adam sinned, there was no death. Animals didn't die before that. You don't have that layer upon layer of dead things being laid down in sedimentary silt that turned to rock later on because we haven't had sin yet. So you cannot, I'm going to say this, 
You cannot be an evolutionist and believe Genesis chapter 1 at the same time. You can't do it. They don't fit together. Secondly, second elephant in the living room is logical incongruity. I'm not going to take time to talk about this, but it's as simple as my statement there. Order cannot be derived from disorder without outside influence. And there's all kinds of philosophical and logical barriers to evolution. It can't happen. You have to defy logic. But you don't have a supernatural being to act upon it, so therefore you can't live with the illogic. You say, you Bible people are illogical. I am indeed. I cannot totally explain my God. And he does not always do things according to my human logic. But in my arrogance, I give him permission as God to do things that he doesn't have to explain to me. Thirdly, archaeological futility is another elephant in the living room. Archaeological futility. What do I mean by that? I would venture to say that in this area, this is a huge embarrassment to the evolutionist. It has to be. Do you know why? There are no missing links. And even in the rock in Texas, we have dinosaurs and human footprints side by side in the mud. Dinosaurs and people lived at the same time. That's what the archaeological evidence tells us. There's no missing links. I brought along my, a, a turkey my father-in-law shot in having dominion over the earth. Do you know, and we'll talk about this, this fits also, this fits also the mathematical improbability of mutation under, under number six. You see, the evolutionist totally depends on mutation. And so somewhere along the line, and I know that I'm, I'm way oversimplifying, almost to the point of not being fair, but the bottom line is the bottom line. Somewhere along the line, the scales on a fish you will be taught begin to feather out through mutation. And the fish needed to crawl up on it, and I don't remember all of them, but I remember having it in my book where scales turned into feathers. Okay? Somewhere in there, you've got to have, like, something that was scaly that began to turn into feathers, and if this is going on over the course of millions and millions of years, because we're told that evolution is still going on, it's just so slow you can't feel it, then the bottom line is there has to be an equal amount of, especially if you're a uniformitarianism, which means everything has gone on all the same all the time. Woo. Okay? There has to be an equal amount of evidence at each level. It didn't go faster or slower, according to them, at one point. So why do we not have missing links? Why don't we have the, the scaly turning into feather? No! When I look at my, when I go to my expert and I look at bird feathers, and I look at fish scales, they're totally unrelated. And we find that a bird feather is beautifully designed, and it's unbelievable in its aerodynamic design. And, and the saying is this, there's, you could no more design a bird feather to work than you could say that a Boeing, a full-sized, fully equipped, state-of-the-art Boeing 747 could come into existence when a tornado hits a junkyard. It can't happen. And the archaeological evidence is not there for missing links. It's got to be an embarrassment. How do you explain it? I don't know, but I just believe it. I'd rather just believe in a God I can't explain than a principle like that. Mechanical impossibility. Look at the picture there. Have you heard of Rube Goldberg? He died in 1970. He made people laugh as a cartoonist and as an inventor by, um, by inventing make-believe machines that were designed to do something very simple, but the machine itself is hugely complicated. That's what makes you laugh. Like, for example, in the cartoon on your picture that's from uh, Michael Behe's book, um, Darwin's Black Box. you got a gentleman standing there having a conversation with a lady while he's having a mosquito bite scratched on the back of his neck with this mosquito bite machine. Let me read the sub part that goes with it, and I don't know if it's big enough to see, but it's like this. This is how this machine works. 
Water from drain pipe A drops into flask B. Cork C rises with water carrying needle D with it. Needle punctures paper tumbler E containing beer. F, beer sprinkles over bluebird G and he becomes intoxicated and falls on spring H which bounces him to platform I. He pulls string J thinking it is a worm. String fires off cannon K which frightens Peace Hound, L, causing him to jump in the air, landing on his back in position, M. His heavy breathing raises disc N, which is brought back into its original position by weight, O. The continual breathing of the dog moves Scratcher, P, up and down over mosquito bite, causing no embarrassment while talking to a lady. Now, why do we take the time for that? This is an... This is a simple principle, and I, I read online this, this week at, at people who are trying to shut this point down, and they cannot do it. Michael Behe destroys their logic, destroys it. And this comes from the intelligent design people. They don't necessarily admit that there's a God, but it's still true. This is still an elephant in the living room. The mechanical impossibility of so much of what we see in our world. Here's the point of this machine. They say that it, is, it exists at the point of irreducible complexity. What does that mean? It means that in its complexity, there is not one single part that you can pull out and still have the machine work. Therefore, the whole thing could never have evolved from simpler forms because all of these advanced forms have to be present and functioning for it to work. We see this all over creation as we get in and out of our helicopter. We see it in the human eye. We see it in bowel movement in the human body. We see it in, um, uh, what else? I wrote down a couple other things. In the red-headed woodpecker and the fact that he can do what he does with his beak and his worms and his tongue and his, his skeletal structure. We see it in blood clotting agents in the blood. Hugely complex. And yet they are at the bottom point of their reduction. They cannot work if one thing is taken away. And if there is only random chance and chaos that put it together, how would it have known to bring all of these things together? It couldn't happen. I, I almost feel embarrassed to have to say that. Why would you, how could you believe that something so complex could happen without a designer? Closely related to that, number five, is the biochemical complexity. That picture that you have there on your paper is a, is a bacterial flagellum. The short of it is this. It turns out that the basic life forms is not so basic. I don't have time to tell you all the things I was reading about this flagellum. This thing is microscopic in size. It's, it's like a tiny biochemists have just recently uncovered it. Here's what's happening. When I was in school and taught evolution... The way life could be explained to come into existence and notice another elephant in the living room is the biological mystery, number seven, of the origin of life. Well, how did it happen? Well, there are very simple life form proteins that can come into existence and then they mutate and evolve up. Here's what's happening as we fly around in our helicopter and we go to the lab and we look in our microscope. We're finding stuff like this in the single cell life forms. And find in that picture what you see there is a cutaway of what amounts to a wankel engine, a rotary motor. And that, that spinner, which allows that germ or whatever it is to move, is spinning at 20,000 RPMs. And the whole time it's doing it, it is using almost zero energy. It's burning almost zero. It is so efficient, man can't even come close to making a motor that can work like that. And that's only the, the tip of the iceberg about that thing. Listen, there is no such thing as a simple life form. When we look in our microscope and we get smaller, 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 we find greater complexity, greater, greater complexity, greater complexity. When we look in our telescope and look out, 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 we don't find simple, simple, simple. We find greater complexity, greater complexity, greater complexity. The mathematical and medical improbability of mutation. That's what I mean by this is, yes, mutations happen all the time. 
There is almost no illustration, almost no illustration of a positive productive mutation and the, and the medical world field who studies mutation, if you said to them, would you like to have some more mutations in your body if you could, and they're experts on mutation, they will never say to you, yeah, I would love to have more mutations. Because it's a thousand to one that mutations are going to be negative, and then the mathematical odds of getting a fish scale to mutate, to feather out, see, it's all mutations, to become a bird feather, it's astronomical. I can't even do it. Like four mutations in a, world, in, in a row, to have four positive mutations in a row, and you would have to have dozens and dozens of mutations in a row. It's mathematically obscene. It just never, it couldn't happen. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. Now, I know that there's genetic shift within species, but cats never become dogs. And lizards who turn from brown to white never turn into snakes. Okay? They are, they are beautifully designed by God to adapt, but there's no crossover. There's no, no positive productive mutation. The astronomical reliability, finally, number nine, the physical impossibility. What do I mean by that? The second law of thermodynamics and entropy all by themselves shut down the evolutionary process. What are we saying? We're saying that everything is in a state of decay. That is a law of science that has never been refuted. When something is left to itself, okay, let's get something that's very advanced. Let's give evolution a head start. Let's go get my dog Chance and give him a chance to evolve. And let's just go set him out in the parking lot. And then let's just sit around and watch. I'm being silly. Left to himself, what is chance going to do? He's going to starve to death. He's going to go run in the traffic and get killed. Let's take my son Jonathan's bedroom. Let's just watch that bedroom evolve into something beautiful. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It's in a state of decay. You follow me? <laughs> it just winds down, 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 down. That's not a fair illustration because he's acting upon it. <laughs> we have to shut down. I've gone way beyond our time frame. What's our conclusion? Suffice it for today, our conclusion is that God's word is reliable. I don't know about you, but I jump out of my helicopter to go sit down at my wife's dinner table to tell her about my great experiment in Creation 101 versus Evolution 101 and my journal and my pictorial directory that I've put together from my camera bears testimony that when I read Genesis chapter 1, I have nothing to be embarrassed about. Why, young people in this audience, will you listen to me? Why would you be shaken in your belief that Genesis 1 is not exactly what Genesis 1 says? This is the truth. It's God's Word. It is true. No, it doesn't answer all our questions, but everything we are observing and everything we are continuing to learn, and we're learning all the time, comes well within the parameters of Genesis 1. And the whole time we're learning and studying, we just come up with more elephants on the other side of the fence. Their problems are increasing. And in fact, the evolution, evolutionists are bailing ship in great numbers, jumping into the intelligent design group. If you go to movies, go see Expelled. It's just, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I plan to. And it'll only magnify what we're saying today. Why do I, why do I make a big deal out of this? I certainly do not want to act like a know-it-all. There are certainly people in the scientific world who know way more than I know. But listen, you don't have to be a mechanic to figure out that your car won't run because it's out of gas. You don't have to be a mechanic to figure out that your car's not running because it doesn't have a battery. You can't come to my house when I say, my car's not running, it's out of gas, and you find out that's the only thing wrong with say, your assessment is no good of this because you're not a mechanic. I don't need to be a biochemist. I don't need to be a scientist to tell you that they're out of gas. That the elephants in the living room are huge. They're irrefutable. God's word is reliable, my friend. Do not be embarrassed of it. Do not let it shake your faith. There is no need for that. 
What you believe makes perfectly good sense. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of this foundation built upon his word. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the devastating results. This is what I started to say a minute ago. Why am I taking time to build this case and make the division clear? Because we have suffered in our world incredible negative residuals because of teaching our children evolution. And next week, we're going to talk about that. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and your good hand upon us. Father, I would pray that in my zeal and in my delivery, that if I have been offensive personally, that you would uh, remove that offense graciously from the listener. But if your word offends them, would you make that clear to them? Father, help us to not be ashamed of your Bible. Help us to realize that Our natural world clearly fits within the parameters of design and order and beauty that we find in Genesis chapter 1. Help us to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge, to grow in our faith, to grow in our confidence. Thank you that you are a great and mighty God that speaking the worlds into existence is nothing for you. And that your promises of caring for us, your children, are very reliable. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.